<laughs> All right, we're going to be in Genesis chapter number 19. Got some kids in the back enjoying Master Club tonight. And uh, I appreciate those folks that work back there with them as well. We're in a series on Wednesday nights with the title, Where Saints Have Trod. And uh, we're looking at places, geographical places in the Bible where something significant happened. And now we won't, we won't address every place in the Bible. Otherwise, uh, everything happens somewhere. And so we would be here through eternity if we tried to address every place in the Bible. I mean, if we just addressed one location in each book of the Bible, we'd be here for 66 weeks. So uh, we probably won't do that. We'll pick out places along the way where something significant uh, has happened that seems to be relevant for us today. And tonight we're going to talk about the sickness at Sodom in Genesis chapter 19. Sickness at Sodom in Genesis. Well, I'll tell you what. I think what we'll do is start out in chapter 18. If you don't mind to flip back to, um, in your Bible, back to 1817. This is the passage of scripture where God has shown up with a couple of angels to inform Abraham and Sarah that they're going to have the promised child and he gives them a timeline. And, uh, and so we're going to start in chapter 18 and go into chapter 19 because this is significant that we see the setting here. And so after God has talked to uh, Abraham about the birth of the child, Isaac, then he starts on a new subject in verse 17. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord might bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. I think, it's, I think it's interesting there that God says something admirable about Abraham, that he'll command his children. Now, we live in a time where psychologists don't want us to warp the children's uh, psyche, and so they tell us, uh, be, be, be careful, they're fragile. Uh, can't just boss them around, you know. But Grandma was right, after all. Uh, need to command those children. We see a lot of children are just out of control today. But Abraham's supposed to keep control of his children according to God. <clears throat> and then <clears throat> verse number 20 says, And the Lord said, we're in chapter 18, verse number 20, And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces thence. These are the angels. And the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. Now this is how we know that it's a, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord because the two men who went on down to Sodom and Gomorrah are the angels. And it says here that Abraham stood yet before the Lord. So the one that stayed behind was the Lord himself. 
We'll just we'll pick up in chapter 19 after we pray. Let's go ahead and pray and we'll read in chapter 19 as we come to it. Father, I pray that you'd bless us as we come to your word tonight. Lord, I pray that you'd fill us with your spirit. Speak through us and to us. And Lord, help our lives to be in tune with your will. I pray that you'd, you'd just fill us with your spirit that we might know how to understand the things of God and apply them in our lives. I pray you'd bless in Jesus' name. Amen. So our series, Where Saints Have Trod, is kind of geographical in nature, and the geography of this meeting of the Lord and a couple of angels with Abraham happens at a particular place. Now, it's near Hebron, which is in the southern part of Israel, and it's the Lord that's there with him. He confirms the time of the fulfillment of the baby that they're to have in their old age. And this, this geographical place is interesting to say the least. I've been there to Hebron and it's a very uh, desolate looking place right now, but evidently at one time it had enough vegetation. You know, weather cycles change. Don't buy the the craziness of this climate change thing that that is man-made. Climate change is all the time. It has for years. And uh, this is a place where they herded sheep on a regular basis around Hebron. And now there's vegetation down there, but it's not real plentiful right now. But evidently it was in this time where they could run some pretty big herds of, uh, of sheep. And the exact location of Sodom and Gomorrah has not been established by archaeologists. There's some who hold that it was in one location around the Dead Sea and some that say it was someplace else. And so there's not a consensus, but there, there's some evidence that I particularly cling to because I think it's the best evidence. Now we got a map here showing the Mideast as a whole. So we're going to zoom in after this, but you can see right here that where the arrow is pointing to the little purplish place on the map on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. That's Israel. Pretty small, but that's the center of the world for God. And so we see the arrow pointing to that. Now let's zoom in and look just a little bit closer and we'll see where Sodom, if you'll notice, the word Sodom there is kind of grayed out. The others are black. That's because they don't really know conclusively where it was. But it is believed that Sodom and Gomorrah was in this area southeast on the Dead Sea and that it's actually underwater now. The Dead Sea has grown over the centuries and so Sodom and Gomorrah may be underwater right now. That's, that's kind of what I believe. can't prove it. I haven't got my archaeologist degree yet. So I, I'm just going by what the guys are supposed to know, say. And I think Sodom and Gomorrah may be underwater right now because the Dead Sea, as you know, it's got the, the Jordan River flowing from Galilee into the Dead Sea, but nothing's flowing out. The lowest place on the face of the earth is right there. When we went to the Dead Sea, we went in the tour bus and we were going down, 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 down. And boy, you know it when you get to the bottom. You're at the bottom of the world there. And we dipped our hands in the Dead Sea and picked up some rocks out of the water. And it was just oily feeling because it's got so much mineral content in it. And it's just, it's slick. And if you were to get in it, now we didn't, but if you got in it to try to swim... Uh, you'd find it very easy because you'd float on top. It's got such a great mineral content. Why is that? Because everything's flowing in and nothing's flowing out. The water that evaporates leaves behind all those concentrated minerals. 
And so as the river has flown into the Dead Sea all these years, it has expanded to the south. And so Sodom may have been right there. And where you see Zoar down at the very bottom, some, some of the archaeologists say that, that Sodom was down there closer to where Zoar is. And it may be, I don't know. But for our study and for most of the things we're going to learn from the passage of Scripture dealing with Sodom and Gomorrah, it's not really uh, necessary for us to understand exactly where it's at. The Bible says it was there, and so I conclude it was there. And so if we ever have an archaeologist to find it and prove where it's at, then that's fine, but we don't need to know that. And so we, we see that Abraham has taken up residence there at Hebron, on, on the left side uh, of, if, if you went over towards the left side of the screen, all the way over, uh, Hebron would be over just to the left. And, and this map also shows Sodom and Gomorrah underwater. So several people believe that. And, but when Abraham and Lot are together before they part ways, they're over on the left side around Hebron. And the Bible says that Lot, lifted up his eyes and looked towards the plain of Jordan and that he was, uh, he was attracted to that side. Abraham lets him choose, lets Lot choose where he wants to go. Now, even though it looks pretty desolate today and on the, on the right side of the lake is Moab and it's also very rocky and desolate, but on the right side of the Dead Sea, Salt Sea, there are several wadis that flow in there. And a wadi is just what we always call, where I grew up, we call them uh, a branch, wet weather stream. And if it's been rainy, it's running. Uh, right now, I've got one that runs right through the edge of my property. And it flow, it's flowing big right now because we had a lot of rain. But about July, it'll start drying up. There'll be just little puddles here and there, and it won't flow anymore till the rainy season in the fall starts again. Well, that's kind of what a wadi is. And when Lot lifted up his eyes and saw a well-watered plain, he's looking over to some pretty grassy stuff. And because of those wadis flowing with a lot of water during the rainy season, there would be a lot of grass growing along there that would keep up their herds. And that's what Lot's looking for. Plus, in those wadis, even as it dries up in dry weather, there would still be holes of water here and yonder where they could water their flocks. And so Lot is making a, a decision. Uh, to He's making a fleshly decision. He wants, he wants the well-watered plain. Abraham more spiritual. He wants God's will. Look at uh, chapter chapter 13 in your Bible, if you would, at verse number 5. Genesis 13, verse number 5. And Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents, and the land was not able to bear them that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle and the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled in the, then in the land. And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. 
wouldn't it be great if people in church could just get along that way? Wouldn't it be great if families could get along that way? Wouldn't it be great if people at work could get along that way and just say, we don't want any strife, you know, we'll just, uh, we'll do whatever we have to do to just kind of get along. Thank God for getting along. Well, thank God for Abraham. Uh, and he says in verse 9, Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. So this fleshly decision that Lot makes is a selfish decision. He's, he's, he's wanting to take the very best. He didn't say, now, now, Uncle Abraham, you're the oldest, and you're kind of my father figure, and so I'll just take whatever's left over, and you pick out what you want. But no, Lot didn't do that, did he? Lot said, there's what I want over there. Now, whether he lifted up his eyes, now, in that part of the country, it's hard to see uh, very far at one time. So it might be that through their travels and herding their sheep from here to yonder, they, would, they were nomadic in, in leading their flocks around. And so maybe Lot had already been over in that part of the country, and when he lifted up his eyes, he was seeing what he had already seen uh, before, and he knew that was the good part of the country. And so he took that self-centered position of, I want the best. We live in such a time as that right now. The me first generation. When I grew up, uh, my dad and mother grew up in the Depression era, World War II, and, and I was born just after, not long after World War II, and so I kind of was experiencing the Depression era vicariously through my parents because they remembered what it was like not to have everything, and they remembered what it was like to help other people out. And, and people back then were very hospitable, very generous, and they put other people first. And now we've got another generation raised through the philosophies of Benjamin Spock that says, I want what's coming to me. Well, they ought, they ought to be glad they're not getting what's coming to them because they'd end up in hell. Right. And so I'm just glad that God's got grace. Well, he chose this area because he was fleshly. And here's what Alan Ross said. Knowing that God's promise was genuine, Abram was indifferent to what Lot would choose. A person who has the promise of God's provision does not have to cling to things. When we cling to things, rather than being spiritually minded and clinging to God, we're headed to decisions that's going to bring heartache. As we approach this passage in chapter 18 and 19, about Sodom, we can learn a lot of lessons. I mean, you can learn hospitality lessons. I mean, the way Abraham took those angels and the Lord in and immediately fed them and the, and the, way, uh, the way people treated each other. We can learn a lot of different lessons from this. And uh, we can't get everything into one sermon that covers everything. So we're going to be focusing on one main subject tonight. By the way, let, let, me, let me just give you this. Cut, some, cut preachers a little bit of slack. When we preach a sermon, uh, sometimes people think, well, why didn't you preach on this? Or you should have included that. Or you should have left out the other thing. We can't tailor a sermon to cover every conceivable question or idea that somebody might have. 
So cut, cut us a little slack. For instance, when I preach on abortion, I'm against abortion. I'm just against it. And, and, and I don't have exceptions to it. I'm just against it because I think it's killing babies. But when I preach on abortion, sometimes I don't mention, I try to remember to mention that sometimes there's women maybe present or listening on the internet that have had abortions and they've repented and they're sorry about what they did in that abortion. And sometimes I don't mention that. But I do in other sermons if I didn't mention that one. So don't condemn me because I didn't mention every conceivable idea that could be brought up in a sermon. There's just way too much criticism of a preacher uh, today because he didn't mention all the conditions and all the possibilities and every idea, every doctrine that could be named in that. Uh, While we're dodging a pedestrian, we might hit somebody's fender and bend it up a little, but we didn't do it on purpose. I don't intend to tiptoe through the tulips when I'm preaching on homosexuality either. Sickness, I've entitled the message Sickness at Sodom, but let me be clear up front, and unlike President Biden, his press secretary says, now the president's been very clear on this, that's her favorite, he's been very clear on this, and after she tells what he was clear on, I'm thinking, I'm more confused than ever. (laughs) I don't think he's very clear on that at all, but I want to be clear about this, sickness about Sodom is not relegating homosexuality to a disease, an illness, whether mental or physical. I use the word because sometimes we use sickness in another sense. Have you ever heard anybody say something that's just real dumb or maybe real gross? And you say, well, that's just sick. We don't mean that they're ill necessarily. We mean that's a sick idea. And there's a sickness at Sodom. And we're going to talk about that tonight. There's been a a stigma on Sodom and Gomorrah for thousands of years now, and psychologists are trying to remove that stigma. They're pushing hard, like naming what used to be called drunkenness. Now they call it uh, alcohol dependency. (laughs) It's not, or they call it a disease. If it's a disease, it's the only one you can buy in a pint bottle and guzzle it. Sickness is not always related to a disease. But there is a stigma with Sodom. And here's what, uh, from Psychology Today, listen to this, from psychologytoday.com, there's something they call the DSM, you may have heard of it. It's uh, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's a manual they use to diagnose and treat mental disorders. Well, that that list is getting kind of smaller and it's getting changed a lot along the way. The DSM-5 departed from the previous version in several ways. And a few of the key changes are listed right here. I don't name many because I don't want to bore you to death, but I just want you to get the gist of it. Here's some changes. They've changed uh, replacing the diagnoses of autistic disorder and Asperger's disorder with the overarching label autism spectrum disorder and establishing obsessive compulsive disorders as its own group of disorders rather than an anxiety disorder. And they use, instead of alcohol abuse, it's alcohol dependence or alcohol use disorder, 
Well, that makes it sound a little nicer, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, nobody wants to be called a drunkard, but I just, I misuse some things. I kind of, re- that absolves me of, of my sin and my stigma, see? <laughs> and then they've changed mental retardation to intellectual disability. Now, retardation just means that something is set back. I mean, in, in the old cars like my 65 Thunderbird, you can, you can set the timing on it. If you retard the timing, that means you set it back where it's a little slower. There's nothing wrong with that word, but because we might offend somebody, we've got to change the way we say it. Uh, adding the diagnosis mild neuro, neurocognitive impairment to categorize problems of old age. <laughs> you know, I can't even say that, much less tell you what it means. I think what my grandpa had was hardening of the arteries. You know, I guess he'd fall into that category. And uh, adding the diagnosis of binge eating disorder. You know, we don't, we don't have, uh, um, I guess, bulimia. And what's that one where they... Huh? That's where you throw up the bulimia. But the other one where you starve yourself. Anorexia, yeah. And so they've changed those to make them sound a little bit nicer. And that's what they've done to homosexuality. First published in 1968, the DSM listed homosexuality as a mental disorder. In 1968, it was a mental disorder. And in 1973, the American Psychiatric uh, Association removed homosexuality as a mental disorder and replaced it with sexual orientation disturbance. Not until late uh, 1987 did homosexuality completely fall out of the DSM. It's not in there at all now. Today, the standard of psychotherapy in the U.S. and Europe is what they call gay affirmative psychotherapy. Gay affirmative. See, you don't want to give them a stigma that there's something wrong with it. You affirm them that, it, hey, you're okay. <laughs> now, again, if somebody was a homosexual and they repented, they got saved. They're not practicing it anymore. I, I don't mean to cast stones at them at all. I'm proud that they got saved. Thank God. And I think some homosexuals do get saved. The, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians when he's talking about sins and effeminacy and, and abusers with, of yourselves with mankind, it does say about those people, and such were some of you. And so they can get saved. What the Bible calls, what the Bible calls uh, homosexuality, the word's not that word's not used in the Bible at all. The word that's used is Sodom, or an extension of it is sodomy. Uh, the Bible, in our text that we're reading tonight, calls it wickedness. Uh, in other texts, it calls it abomination. Uh, there's there's a lot of things that have a stigma to it that the Bible uses that wouldn't go over well with psychologists and psychiatrists nor the woke society today. But my understanding is that nobody is born homosexual. And even if they were, even if they were right, they don't have to practice it. You can resist. The Bible says resist the devil and he will flee from you. See, I was born as a normal 
heterosexual. Now, I don't know about being normal or not. My wife doesn't think I'm very normal, but, but I am a heterosexual, uh, and I guarantee you that. Uh, there's not a homosexual bone in my body. If there was, I'd have it removed surgically. But my understanding is nobody's born homosexual, but if they were, they don't have to practice the sin. I was born as, as a heterosexual, but I don't think it would be right for me to commit heterosexual adultery. And so, a homo, even if a homosexual was born with that mental convincing that he was a homosexual, he doesn't have to practice it any more than you or I would practice fornication and adultery. I mean, we're inclined. I mean, it's normal for a man to uh, be attracted to a woman. But that doesn't mean he has to go rape somebody. It doesn't mean he has to go uh, step out on his wife and commit fornication and adultery with somebody else. Neither does a homosexual have to commit that sin with another man. Nor does a woman. Ordinary people, like you and me, have to decide, are we going to listen to the psychologist or are we going to listen to God? Let me, let me give you four things quickly, just to let you know I've got an outline. <laughs> All that other stuff, that was just introduction and it's free. It didn't cost you anything. Now, I've got to earn my money by giving you an outline. Uh, notice the movement of the ideas in our passages of Scripture, eight, chapter 18 and 19. Notice, first of all, the attention to abomination. We said homosexuality is listed like in, in Leviticus 17. It's called an abomination. Uh, notice that God is not aloof from his creatures and his creation. Some people think God's not involved with people and situations. The Bible says in the passage we read, well, let's read it again, just let you get reacquainted with it. In chapter 18, verse number 20, And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous. See, their sin is grievous. God said that. It's a grievous sin. He said in verse 21, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it. If not, I'll know. What does he mean, I'll go down and see? Do you think God, God can't stand in heaven and see? <laughs> Did, is God not om, omniscient and omnipresent? He, he can see everything from wherever he is. But why does the Bible say he came down to see? Because that's for your benefit and mine. It's for the benefit of those who were in Sodom and Gomorrah. He does it because he wants us to realize that he's involved with his creation. He knows what's going on. And he said, I'm going to go down and see. It's not that he couldn't see. It's just that he wanted to emphasize the fact that he does see. And he does watch. And he does interact with his creation. And when I was little, my mom would look at me when I did something inappropriate. My mother would look at me, and she had that mom look. You know what I'm talking about? She'd raise that eyebrow up. Now, couldn't she see me okay without raising that eyebrow? She could. You know why she raised that eyebrow? She was saying something with that eyebrow. She was saying, I see you. And you're about to get in trouble. 
You know what God's doing when he says, I'm going to go down and see what's going on at Sodom and Gomorrah. He's not saying, I can't see it from where I am now. I've got to walk down there and check it out. He's saying, I see, and you better listen. And he's raising his eyebrow. Because you're fixing to get in trouble, Sodom and Gomorrah. When I was in high school, Mr. Humphrey, shop teacher, man, he had arms bigger than my legs. That guy was, a, he was muscled up. And... We're, we're kind of afraid of him. He was a good man. But you know how high schoolers are. We're not headed and didn't know much. Well, he left shop one day and went out to take care of some business at the office. And, and when he came back to the shop, Chuck Lawrence and I had got on the table saw. Instead of working on our project, I think I was making a gun rack. And instead of working on that gun rack, we had taken some one-befores we found, and we sawed out two swords. I mean, had the little hand guard and everything on it. We made a pointed end on it like a picket fence stake. And, and Chuck and I were over there in the shop. All these other guys were working on their projects. Chuck and I were having a sword fight. <laughs> and Mr. Humphrey walked in. Now, he knew what we were doing. But he walked over where we're at. He said, Brooks, let me see what you've got there. I said, yes, sir, and I handed it to him. He looked at it, and he said, well, that's nice work. That's nice work. That must be a sword. Yes, sir, that's what it is. Chuck, let me see yours. He looked at it. Now, he knew what they were. He didn't look those over and, and scrutinize all of it and comment on it and took forever. We're just, we're standing there, you know, we're squirming <laughs> and thinking, is he going to whoop us or not? <laughs> and he looked at those, and he handed mine back to me, and he handed Chuck's back to him. He said, now, come over here, boys. He said, lay your swords down here on this table. He said, bend over, Brooks. I'm going to show you what this really works good for. And he bent me over and wham, wham, wham. And he did the same to Chuck. He used those swords for what he thought was a better purpose. He's wailed the daylights out of us. But you know what? He didn't need to do all that looking and dragging things out. It was None of it was necessary. It was just to put a little bit of uh, concern in us. And boy, were we concerned. You know what God's doing? He's saying, I don't have to go down there and, and stand on the streets of Sodom to know what they're doing. I know what they're doing. But I'm telling you, I'm going to go look to get it across to everybody else. And it's still on the pages of Scripture today. And that ought to cause a little bit of uh, nervousness and anxiety, even though psychologists don't believe in anxiety. Uh, we ought to be a little bit anxious about, about uh, what he says here. He's, he's watching things. God's keeping an eye on things. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. And he knows what's going on without moving a finger. I don't even know if he needs to raise an eyebrow. <laughs> he sees what's going on. And that's there for our benefit. God pays close attention to the abomination, but also see that there was some compassion allotted. Lot's plea. I'm, I'm sorry, Abraham's plea is brought out in chapter 18. Look at chapter 18 again. 18.22 And the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And Abraham drew near, drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous Within the city, wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place? Now remember the place, that's our geographical point of reference here that we're talking about. 
the city of Sodom, the sickness of Sodom. He said, are you going to spare, not spare the place for 50 righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? <laughs> I'd be afraid to say that to the Lord, wouldn't you? <laughs> but Abraham said it. And the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the place, all the place, for their sakes. Now see, God's willing to be, God's willing to be reasonable. God's willing to be compassionate. God's willing to show mercy. But Abraham goes ahead and negotiates this thing down. He just knocks off five and ten here and there and just negotiates all the way down until he's got nothing but a handful. And just in uh, verse 32 he says, uh, Abraham said, and he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and if I, and I will speak yet but this once. Peradventure ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham, and Abraham returned unto his place. There wasn't even ten people there that were not corrupted in Sodom. But God offered mercy to Lot and to his family and even all those Sodomites. They could have... Now see, Lot was saved. Lot was a, Lot was a saint. I know he wasn't acting like one. <laughs> but he was a saved man and because he was, a, he was a saved man, God's willing to bring him out and spare him and his family. His compassion and his mercy and his reasonableness was shown right here. And if those Sodomites would have repented, he would have brought them out too. Any of them that would have gotten saved, he would have brought them out. I mean, when Noah preached for 120 years and nobody got saved besides his own family, don't you think 120 years was a pretty good time for God to give them to repent? <laughs> but they didn't. God is pretty compassionate and long-suffering, wouldn't you say? 120 years? But they wouldn't listen. and They could have got on the ark if they would have listened. And these men in Sodom could have got out of the city if they had just turned to the Lord. When you're trapped in addictions, you can turn to God and come out. My service advisor at a dealership, not in Searcy, yesterday told me that he had uh, turned his life around, or the Lord had turned his life around, that he said he was a pretty, pretty bad guy, addicted, drug abuser. And he said he got saved, and the Lord's given him victory now. I told him to just stay in church, stay close to that preacher, and, and uh, just learn how to live for the Lord. But the Lord brought him out. The Lord doesn't hate people and want to destroy them. He gives them lots of space to turn to him. And when they do, he's willing to bring them out. He brought this fellow out of addiction that I'm talking about just yesterday. Some Christians are opening the door to the devil. Some Christians are opening the door to the devil by laying out a church. They're not getting fed the, the word of God. 
And if they're laying out of church, they're probably not having a whole lot of devotion time either. <laughs> probably not reading their Bible much. Probably not communing with God a lot. And they're opening the door to the devil. And that habit can lead them into a place like it did Lot. Lot was a saint, but he was acting more like a haint. He's living there with all those wicked people and didn't seem to mind it at all. Not even ten righteous people in the city, but he was fine being there. Can I just tell you, if you're not a church planter or you're not a, you're not a missionary, you ought not be moving somewhere where there's not a, a place to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. I like what Brother Jerry said uh, when we're talking before services. He said, I'm not going to move anywhere. Think about moving to Arkansas. Couldn't, couldn't think of a better place, Brother Jerry. Move here. <laughs> uh, he said, I'm not moving anywhere where there's not a good fundamental Baptist church. Well, I appreciate that. And that's the way I've always been too. I wouldn't move somewhere. Unless I'm going there to start a church, I wouldn't move there if there's not one. And any, any dad, any mom that takes their family and moves them away from any place where there's, a God, where there's not a God-fearing church, they can end up just like Lot. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, speaks of Lot. It says in turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live godly, and delivered just Lot. You see that? Delivered just Lot. Now, the word just means he's justified. Lot was a fellow that had accepted the Lord. He believed God. And yet it says in verse 7, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. Here's a man who belongs to God, and yet he's in a place where the Bible says he's being vexed every day with the wicked conversation of the people around him. And that can happen to you or me or anybody else if we're not careful to stay in contact with the God of the universe. And one of the best places to do that is in a good church. Number three, notice the judgment applied. Now we're, we're hitting the highlights of this narrative to try to get the main lessons out of it. The judgment applied. God may seem to be diverted sometimes. He may seem to be out of touch, not paying attention, or he forgot he was going to discipline somebody or judge somebody. But I don't think God forgets, do you? I believe God keeps up with things. Genesis 19, verse 24. And the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities. By the way, there's a there's a reference to the Lord. I believe it's the Lord Jesus because he, he says the Lord, now he's still present there in Sodom and Gomorrah, and it says the Lord rained fire from the Lord out of heaven. So we've got a Lord here and a Lord there. So I believe we see two, <coughs> two people of the Trinity right there. And verse 25 says, And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities. And that which grew upon the ground, all that green grass got burned up. But it, and by the way, the reason it doesn't grow there much today may be just because of all the sulfur or whatever chemicals were involved and whatever was rained down and burned up their place. 
Maybe that's why grass doesn't grow there good right now. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back from behind him and she became a pillar of salt. Well, that's sad, but at least, at least Lot didn't have to buy salt for his watermelon anymore. That wasn't funny, was it? The Sodomites had lived in gross, wicked sin for years. Maybe they knew something about God, but I figured, well, he hadn't done anything yet. Maybe I can get away with this. And that's a warning for you and me. Just because God hadn't lured the boom on us already doesn't mean he won't chastise Hebrews chapter 12. Doesn't mean he's forgot. This has been going on for years, but somehow just now they've crossed a deadline. You and I don't know where that line is. But there evidently is a line there somewhere that, that can be crossed. And these, these Sodomites, they even tried to break into Lot's house where the, the two angels were inside Lot's house. He was trying to show hospitality. He must have known that they were heavenly visitors, I guess. He was protecting them. And the, and the men uh, of that city, the Sodomites, were banging on the door trying to, trying to break in to get those two men out. He said that we might know them. They wanted to perform on those men their perverted lifestyle to try to rape these men and that vile sin is destined for judgment and now it happens. Romans 1.24 says, Wherefore God gave them up to uncleanness through their lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the, cre- the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this cause God gave them up, watch this, God gave them up. There's, there's the line I was talking about. There comes a place where God says, I'm done with you. And it says, in, <clears throat> for this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. He said, if you want to do that nasty, filthy stuff, I'm done with you. Have your own way. And he said, For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. I mean, anybody who grew up on a farm like I did knows that that you don't marry two boar hogs together and expect to get pigs. You don't marry two bulls together and expect to get calves. You don't have a chicken house full of roosters and get baby chickens or eggs, either one. I mean, nature tells us the way God designed us. He says, and likewise, verse 27, and likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, man to man. Men with men, working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Now, I don't know when God gives up on somebody. Anybody's got a breath in them, I'm going to try to witness to them and get them saved. Because I don't know. Only God sees the heart. And only God knows if they've crossed some sort of deadline that they can't 
get conviction from the Holy Spirit anymore. But if I wasn't saved, I'd be scared to death to not get saved right away. And if, if homosexuals today, if they had an ounce of discernment, they'd say, you know, we can't just keep doing this and expect God to overlook it. The point is that there is a place and humankind does not know where that line is. Beyond that judgment at Sodom by raining down fire from heaven was a sinful remnant, and we're going to cover that, and this is the last one. The sin attached. Okay, there was a judgment that fell. Sodom and Gomorrah is wiped out. Fire from heaven, the place burns up. Everybody in it dies except for Lot and his two daughters. The, the wife looks back and is turned to Saul. But Lot and his two daughters make it out because God led them out. I think that's the way the rapture will be. Uh, God's going to get us out before the fire falls. And the sin that's attached, though, even after that judgment fell, there was still a sin attached to Lot and his two daughters that was clinging to them. You see, when you hang out, that's why the Bible talks about separation from the world and separation from the sin because the more we get involved with the sins of the world, the more it clings to us. And that sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was clinging to Lot and his daughters, the immorality of the place. I mean, they didn't have any, memor- uh, immor- they didn't have any morality. It was gone. And so... Here's what we find in Genesis 19.32. After Lot and his daughters have gone out and hung out, found them a place to live in a cave, it says in verse 32 of chapter 19, the girls say to each other, Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve seed of our father. They wanted to be with child from their own father. Do you see how the morality of Sodom and Gomorrah has faded the decency in them. When we hang out around sin too much, it clings to us and, and it doesn't let go easily. Chapter 19, verse 36 says, Thus were both the daughters of Lot with child by their father. Verse 37, And the firstborn bare a son and called his name Moab. Hey, anybody remember Moab on the map we saw a little while ago? Moab was... A bad place. It wasn't where the children of God were supposed to be. They're supposed to be in a promised land. They weren't supposed to be hanging out over in Moab. And the child that was born of this incest turned out to be a founder of Moab. But let's read on. The same as the father of Mo- the Moabites unto this day. And the younger, she also bare a son and called his name Ben-Ami. The same as the father of the children of Ammon unto this day. The Ammonites, they also were enemies of Israel. You see how sin clings to us when we hang out with it too much. He, Lot was a saint. The Bible says he calls him just Lot. But boy, that sin clung to him and his daughters and it went with them and carried on to generations to follow. We have to break the cycle. Say, well, preacher, why would you even preach on this to a Wednesday night crowd? Well, first of all, Sodom and Gomorrah is a real geographical place in in the Bible, and that's what we're preaching on. (laughs) But we need to learn the Bible. We need to know what the Bible teaches. 
And number two, we must have answers for those who question us. Sometimes you ever have anybody say, well, if there's a God in heaven, then why, does, why do all the bad things happen? Why does he let all these bad things happen? Why didn't he just create a perfect place? The answer is, he did. <laughs> he created a perfect place and mankind messed it up. And that's why there's sin. That's why there's sickness. That's why there's disease and suffering. And we need to know the answers so we can explain to others. See, these were choices made by the Sodomites and by Lot and by his family. And we need to explain to people, when you make bad choices, you get bad consequences. And number three, why preach this? We have to guard our children from the ungodliness of the world around us. The Bible says things are going to wax worse and worse. You can see it. I mean, if you care to watch the news for just a little while, uh, each day for a week, you'll see that things have gone downhill drastically. And, and institutions, the political arena, government, education, psychology, even medicine, the CDC, and everything else, Everybody's getting woke. <laughs> They're all uh, becoming social justice warriors. And they've turned everything upside down from what's normal. And it's not just that they're, that they're tolerating it. They're promoting it. <laughs> I mean, you can see the crudeness in everything that they promote. And we need to teach our children We'll have to spend a lot of time. You know, how, you know how long the school has your kids during the year? We have them maybe, maybe two hours a week here at church. How many hours a week are they? If they go to a public school, how many days a week? How many hours are they instructed by the godless system? Yeah, I know there's a few good teachers, but they are so heavily influenced by the curriculum and by the NEA that puts pressure on them to cave to the worldliness, the wokeness. That's why you can't depend on your church to teach them two hours a week to try to correct everything that's been fed to them all week long. So what happens? We need to teach our kids at home a lot more. If they're going to learn about God, they're going to have to learn it from their parents. They're not going to learn it out yonder. They're not going to have much time to learn it here. And so that's why parents need to be so godly and so concerned about teaching the Bible and the ways of God to their kids. That's why we preach on that. Because it's not just them out there. They're outnumbering us, ladies and gentlemen. And they're pressuring your family to conform to the way they want you to be. You can't say what you want to say without being ostracized and criticized and if you're in business, they'll put you out of business if you don't kowtow to their way of thinking. That's why we need to know what the Bible says, what the Bible teaches, and we've got to teach it to our kids before they get corrupted by the world. And it's just happening. Thank God we've got a compassionate, loving God who through His grace and by His Spirit, using His Word, can shape us and mold us, help us to grow in grace to be the servants of the Lord, that we can survive the wicked generation around us. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'd bless us. Lord, I pray that as we come to this time that we'd make decisions in our heart that you've spoken to us about. Lord, I pray that you'd bless the preaching of thy word. Lord, bless our people for being here.
Our heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I'm going to ask you to stand if you would as a